my name is Arham Alam, and I'm your host for Swamp Talk, where we swamp the talk and talk the swamp. Today, I have a special guest, uh, Dr. Manuel Castro. He's an infectious disease specialist here in Alpharetta, Georgia. He serves many of the hospitals in this area, especially uh, particularly the ones that have been impacted by the COVID-19 crisis after the past couple of months. And today, I have the special privilege and honor to be asking him some questions. And so, uh, Dr. Castro, if you'd like to, you can say hi, hello. Um, hello, Arham. How are you? Uh, thank you for having me. It's yeah. a pleasure to be with you and uh, talk about COVID-19 a little more. Yes, definitely. Thank you so much. So, um, one of the first questions I had, because, um, uh, frankly, because I've been quarantined for so many months, I haven't really, I haven't really interacted with many people, and most of the news I get, um is mainly from online, whether it's NPR or CNN or um, other uh, outlets. So what is the current state of the pandemic? Like, are we in a second wave? Are the infection and death rates decreasing? So what's that the current a, state? That is a great question. That is a great question. Um, I do think that the pandemic is slowly improving, at least now, we're seeing a, a decrease in the number of new cases, a slow decrease in the number of new cases, and a slow decrease in the number of deaths. Now, when we talk about a second wave, um, that might be difficult to determine. To determine a, a second wave, you have to first see if there was an end to the first wave. I see. And I don't think there has been an end to the first wave that I would say started around March. I would say that there was probably a second spike, the okay. first one being around April, May, then decreasing a little bit around June and then coming back up in July and August. And now we're seeing a slow decrease of that big spike in July and August. But I wouldn't necessarily call it a, a second wave since there wasn't a... Um, and an end to the first wave. I see. So how do they determine like whether or not like uh, a certain like areas in the second wave, like, is it uh, um, like, is it determined like on a geographic basis? Because I heard recently, uh, I believe some, uh, the health minister in France said, or I, be, I believe the health minister in Marseille in, uh, in France said that they are currently in a second wave. So like, does it vary by geographic location or is it like a blanket statement you apply to the entire world? No, I would say um, that it depends on the location. I see. Uh, there, there are hotspots at different times and there are distributions and curves for different territories like Europe and with the statistics now, you can you know actually see a specific city or a hotspot or a state or a country. And I think that the spikes and the waves are different um, in different places, depending on what we're doing to prevent the virus and the lockdowns at different times. Um, I, if I had to refer mainly to the US, I would say that the, the first wave hasn't completely resolve and we're seeing the second spike now decrease um slowly okay um so beyond that though so 
my next question is going to be, so what caused the mass skepticism, do you believe, of reputed doctors and medical organizations? And have you experienced some of this skepticism yourself? Yeah, so answering the first part of the question, the skepticism in regards to reputed doctors and doctors or medical professionals in general, yes. I think that it came originally from different things. One is where and how did this virus originate mm -hmm. and how did it start. In the beginning, there were different versions and that's how skepticism starts you know, hearing different things from different people and not having a clear, um, a clear reason or a clear origin. Then there were some contradictions in regards to if humans could get it or not and how it was transmitted. I see. And also later in the process, different treatments that could work or not. And to some extent, politics were involved too with uh -huh. contradicting, um, contradicting uh, affirmations from different people, including scientists related to politics and politicians. So I, see. Um, I think that the different versions and the contradictions create this skepticism in a lot of people. Now to your second point, if I have um, suffered some of this skepticism, I would say, yeah, to some extent, all of us have seen people not wanting to wear mask or trying to prevent this in different stages of the pandemic. Some have changed their minds along the course of the pandemic and some still uh, don't want to believe in prevention and uh, are skeptic in regards to some treatments or in favor of some treatments that are not necessarily proven to help. So yeah, we have all, I think, been exposed to this to, to some extent. So, like... I, I, I'm not a big fan of playing the blame game, but um, do you believe that there is like a certain person or entity or country to uh, necessarily pin the spread of this um, uh, of the coronavirus throughout the world? Like, for example, um, I, I remember back in March, for example, uh, the Trump administration and also uh other politicians they were quickly they quickly went to blame china and the world health organization and so and uh definitely i mean i can't say um whether or not they were right um because i, I frankly don't have the experience but what is your perspective on this i think it's difficult to blame a person or an entity i think that everyone as a whole including myself could have done a better job at preventing things um, we don't know, we don't have, still we don't know clearly how it started. Um, maybe, um, some governments locally, uh, in China uh, could have done a better job or, or the government <clears throat> per se from China could have done a better job at, uh, reporting this initially is possible. We could have done a better job here at, preventing people from getting it in the beginning. Um, but it's certainly hard um, to blame someone or an entity specifically. It's always easier in retrospective. But uh, if we, you know, went through this again, um, I think that learning from this, we could do a better job. Um, 
preventing things or reporting things earlier so other people or so many people would not get it. Mm-hmm. Um, that is certainly difficult to, to blame someone. Yeah. Um, it's always okay. easier, easier when you see it, you know, in retrospective. Definitely. Okay, thank you. Um, so I'm going to uh, switch tracks, if you will. Um, I'm going to talk about the impact statistics has had on uh, COVID-19 and the ability to track it. So how has statistics and data collection proven to be useful for tracking COVID? I think it's extremely useful. I think that being able to see in real time or very close to real time where the new cases are happening, where the hotspots for new cases are, the number of deaths in every city, state, or country, uh, because this is not only local but global, um, is very, very useful to us, very helpful. Um, also, statistics play a big role in regards to testing and you know, telling us what test is better for COVID uh, among the different tests that there there are and when they were starting to test, which test could be better. Uh, and I think in the future it's going to play a role too in regards to potential treatments like we've seen in the recent past and the vaccine as well. I see. Okay, thank you. Um, so one more question in regarding the statistics. Some people have claimed that there are um, too many tests being done. Could you explain the rationale behind that argument or like uh, like whether or not that's an actual legitimate argument? Well, there have been uh, several brands that have different tests. I would say the most common tests we use are the antibody test, um, uh-huh. particularly IgM that tells you about active disease and IgG that tells you about previous disease or exposure to the virus. I see. And, and then the... PCR, that is a genetic test that recognizes the virus. Um, so those are the type of tests that we, we use the most. Now, there are different brands, and depending on the uh, brand and the timing that they take tests to result, there could be some more or less accuracy. Um, but I would say normally we use the uh, PCR or the nasal swab to diagnose the test, and it's fairly accurate. I would say more than 85, more than 90% in some cases. Um, and the antibodies uh, tend to be fairly accurate too along those same lines. But as I said, the IgM shows more active infection, but you have to wait at least five to seven days for it to be positive and the IgG that shows exposure, you require at least two weeks from that exposure or from the time you had the virus. So um, it's more difficult to diagnose actively now um, if I were to test a patient with those antibodies. I see. Okay. Okay. Um, Thank you. Uh, So the next question I do have is... um, how can statistics improve in order to help medical professionals? Well, I think that more than improving um, alone will be how detailed they can get in regards to contact tracing uh, and knowing, you know, locally by each health department where the main number of uh, patients are and how we can help prevent it. Uh, prevent the virus or, or the extension of the virus in each city or county 
And also, I think statistics will improve our knowledge of how much the vaccine is working when the vaccine comes out mm-hmm. um, and how long it will take and how many people it will take to get vaccinated um, to help the prevent prevent more COVID-19 or eradicate COVID-19 at some point, hopefully. And also, they will help us with the new therapies that could come in the future if there is any that is uh, effective towards COVID. Okay. Uh, and so, beyond that, what do you believe are the long-term psychological effects of the quarantine and of the pandemic? Because uh, some people have stated, for example, that uh, back in like the 50s, for example, the those group of children they were considered the greatest generation or excuse me not the 50s the 40s because they uh were raised or like the 30s and 40s because they were raised during the great depression and also world war ii so they were raised during back-to-back global issues to a certain extent so what do you believe will be the overall psychological impact of the pandemic, not only on a personal scale, but also nationwide and possibly around the globe? Sure. Um, well, I think that in the general population, locally and worldwide, we're seeing higher numbers of anxiety and depression, for example, for people that have been quarantining, people that have gotten the virus, uh, have gotten infected directly with the virus um, and people that have been under lockdown for several weeks or months. Um, We're also seeing an increase in substance abuse, uh, alcohol, drugs, um, people that are not working because they're in lockdown, they stay home and they tend to get, you know, more into alcohol and and drugs in general. I see. now, in regards to medical professionals, um, we're seeing a lot of burnout, mm-hmm. um, also depression and stress uh, from the uh, exposures and the risk uh, we take as, as professionals uh, in contact with COVID-19 patients in a daily basis. And also we see PTSD mm-hmm. from patients that had it and are scared to get it again in the future. Um, so those are, I would say the main ones. And sometimes there are some stigmas, uh, in, in, in different workplaces, if they know that someone, um, or some coworker got it in the same company in the same workplace, there is also some stigma and some, uh, anxiety and stress from that. So how have you personally dealt with this? Because considering you're going to the hospital, um, very frequently, you're leaving yourself susceptible to the um, to the virus, how have you been able to reconcile that, especially because um, you do have a family at home and everything? So how have, been, how have you been able to reconcile your job your job as a doctor and ensuring your family is safe and dealing with the psychological impacts of that? I think that mainly um, trying to have a lot of my free time with my family, mm-hmm. my my direct family has been very supportive, but spending the time with them, trying to keep my mind away from work when I'm off, um, 
trying to um, play some sports, uh, exercise, um, uh, potentially read books that are not related to this or try to avoid uh, in, in some situations uh, watching news or, or reading news about these to try to, if you will, decompress and yes. get a break from it. I think it's uh, probably the best I, I've been able to do so far. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and so my final question will, uh, is uh, when will we know definitively that the pandemic is over? Well, I don't think we have uh, that answer or we're close to getting an answer like that. Um, I'm definitely hopeful that we will see an end. Um, there are some articles and uh, some experts that have said that maybe by mid or end uh, of 2021. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think it's very difficult to get to that conclusion. We're hoping that the vaccine, um, if it is released, as they are saying, around beginning of 2021, um, will help us get to that goal of, you know, mid or end of 2021. Okay. So I think, um, let me rephrase my question a little bit. Because, uh, like... It, maybe not necessarily when, but how do we know the pandemic has ended? Like in history, such as with the uh, Spanish flu or with other pandemics, how have we known that this pandemic is over? Normally in history, it has been when either there is a big majority of people, more than 50, 60% have gotten it. And the number of cases exponentially goes down or disappears because most of people already had it or because we can eradicate it with a vaccine. Uh, and then you see a significant decrease in the amount of cases because we're able to prevent it with a, with a vaccine and good social distancing and, and uh, other prevention measurements like masking, but mainly the vaccine. Um, so we're hoping to get to one of those. Um, and at this point, I would say our main hope is in the vaccine because we don't know how long the immunity lasts after you actually get COVID. Okay, excellent. Thank you so much, Dr. Castro, for your time. Um, I'm going to let you go and rest now. Uh, for those of you listening, thank you so much. Uh, I hope this has been an excellent, uh, or maybe not excellent, but more helpful interview to at least maybe possibly give you some optimism about the current state of affairs and what we possibly have looking forward. So again, Dr. Castro, thank you so much. Thank you, Arham. My pleasure. Okay. Thank you and bye. bye. Yeah.